Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. It is Friday morning, January the 6th, 2022. It is the first week of January. And a number of things happen in the month of December of interest and applicability to Americans abroad. Uh, specifically, uh, Treasury entered into a Model 1 FACA agreement with Argentina. Uh, Treasury signed a new tax treaty with Croatia, which significantly uh, alters the saving clause to allow the U.S. to tax renounced U.S. citizens, among other things. And a most interest in consequence is IRS Notice 2023-11, issued before 2023, because on one level, the result of it is that foreign banks will not be uh, deemed to be in significant non-compliance under their fact obligations because they've not been able to supply the IRS to the Social Security numbers of certain U.S. citizens. And this morning to discuss all of this and what it might mean and what it does not mean or what it means in part and what it means in whole and the overall context is the one and only Keith Redmond. How are you this morning, Keith? I am doing okay. Happy New Year 2023 to you. Well, Happy New Year to you too, and Happy New Year to all the foreign financial institutions, and especially Happy New Year to all the Americans abroad who are bearing the brunt of all of this. For now, we're in the year of what? Is this year 11 or something? Yeah, I think it is starting year 11. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. So this is interesting that we're starting the new year out with this IRS notice that has just been handed down um, to move forward in this new year. So tell me, John, what do you think, to get the ball rolling here, what do you think about the notice that has been communicated from the IRS regarding FATCA and the delay for financial institutions to... uh, they have a little bit of a quote unquote, if I may say, respite in getting uh, obtaining social security numbers on U.S. persons. What I think about it is that it's a clear, clear statement from Treasury that they are absolutely intent on enforcing FACA as a vehicle to enforce a U.S. citizenship taxation on the rest of the world. And it is clear the only meaning that U.S. citizenship taxation really has in a practical sense is the U.S. imposition of worldwide taxation of people who are tax residents of other countries. And it's clear that's what they're doing. They've made it upside down, sideways, and diagonally in their statements. And I think that people need to realize the Treasury has no interest whatsoever and changing the basic objectives of FACA and citizenship taxation. So if I hear you correctly, you do not think this is a good thing with this delay for financial institutions in um, getting this information vis-a-vis Social Security numbers on U.S. persons. I know some people and some entities have thought that this could be an opportunity for things to change with FATCA. But what I'm hearing from you is quite the opposite. Uh, I don't know if I'd use the word the opposite, but I will say that uh, I think the people who see this as some great news are missing the broader picture without a doubt. Um, the, the thing about it is that 
you know, there have been uh, over the last six years or so a continual uh, kicking the can down the road, a delay of uh, the requirement that these banks uh, provide Social Security numbers to Treasury. Now, and to be clear, okay, the reason the Social Security numbers are not being provided is usually because one doesn't exist. All right. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Kinds of, you know, people born in the United States and therefore conferred, had U.S. citizenship conferred, and those simply don't have these. And all you have to do is look at the age of the person, and you're likely to see, uh, you know, how that is. Or, uh, you know, somebody just born outside the United States, you know, who never registered U.S. citizenship, et cetera. Um, so, you know, that's that's basically uh, that's basically the reason for this. OK, in most cases, I doubt that this is just, you know, a refusal to provide it or, you know, or something. OK, but in any case, it is very, very clear that of the, uh, the the problem of the banks not being able to get Social Security numbers is overwhelmingly because the Social Security numbers don't exist. OK, right. Right. So. What we have here is the first level is is the Treasury saying, well, you know what, we're not going to punish you banks for another three years for not being able to provide something that's impossible for you to provide, you know, because we at Treasury, we're so understanding and generous. OK, but, um, you know, they're saying that in return for this, this, and this is why this is not an extension, OK, in return, specifically in return. We are requiring the following. Now, the first thing that is required is that the, the foreign financial institution must be in a country, okay, which is an IGA Model 1 country, where the government of the country, now this is extending beyond the bank, the government of the country is willing to take very specific steps to jump into the fact of compliance process, to literally jump in and lend the weight of their, uh, their laws, their moral authority, whatever, to enhancing compliance in this area. Now, what the, uh, the country itself is agreeing to do or is required to do, okay, and I may have this off by a word or two because I'm, I'm just speaking to you without any notes or anything, but we need to look at the language here. The first thing that the, that the, uh, the government is required to do is now the use, the, the word is enforce, take steps to enforce FATCA compliance on their own banks. In other words, no monkey business here. If there are any banks who are wink winking or anything, uh, you know, no, we won't report you as a U.S. citizen. That has to stop. OK, so that's the first thing. The banks are required to enforce uh, compliance uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the government's required to enforce compliance on their own banks. Now, the second thing that I think is of great interest is that the countries are committing to, now the, the language is interesting, encourage, encourage U.S. citizens living in their countries to comply with FATCA. Okay, so, so you know, that that's, that's kind of interesting, right? Now, yeah. Um, you know, there are a couple of other things that we can go back to, but I, but I want to focus, I want to focus on, oh, a third is, significantly, is they have to agree to do the bidding of U.S. Treasury. I mean, this is unbelievable. If U.S. Treasury says, enter into this, we do this. Do the, you know, we ask you to do this, jump, how high? I mean, it's really, 
you know, it's really extraordinary. So, so the first point is that this relief is possible only if the government of the country agrees to do this. All right. Now, to put it another way, this problem is now extending beyond, you know, the banks versus the, you know, the individual person. Now the government is coming in as sort of a, not so much a referee, but added weight on the side of the banks, right? Okay. Correct. Now, yes. now let's assume that the government is willing to do this. And of course they're going to do this, okay? Of course they're going to do it. Then we move to heightened obligations on the banks. Now, what the banks, the banks are no longer able to just say, well, they wouldn't supply a social security number. Now, of course, there's a complicated coding system, a bunch of forms where they have to explain why. Okay, all right. But, okay, what's interesting is that the banks, in relation to this group of recalcitrant U.S. citizens, all right, uh, are required to send out a letter once a year saying, you know, where's your social security number? You know, what are you doing to get it? They're also required, okay, to uh, do an electronic search of records. In other words, let's hunt. We're, we're hunt. We're going to hunt for these people, okay? Right. And the third is that in their communication uh, with these recalcitrants, uh, they're actually uh, required to include information from U.S. websites. Um, one, of, one of the things is either the uh, relief procedures for former citizens, letting them know how they can renounce. Uh, and there was a second link, uh, you know, talking about FATCA. By the way, sort of parenthetically, at the at least as of yesterday, the links that they provided didn't work. Okay, which is, you know, I guess par for the course, but interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what's going on here. And this is why I, I really find it difficult to understand how anybody who's philosophically opposed to fact and citizenship taxation could possibly see this as a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to surmise why they would think it's a good thing. Hence the reason for my statement earlier, thinking it bides time to address the problems of FATCA. Well, but, I mean, obviously the banks think it's a good thing because they're not going to be deemed to be in significant noncompliance. Okay. You know, I right. mean, it's another stay of execution, so we can understand. But the banks don't care about anything but the banks, right? Right. Okay, you know, so from their point of view, I suppose, uh, in generally, it's better than the alternative, even if they have to, you know, go through these additional hoops. Um, you know, the, the, the people whose accounts are under immediate threat of closure, the, that group of Americans abroad, presumably, you know, and by the way, now, this applies only to pre-existing accounts. Uh, it applies only to accounts that existed typically on July 1st, 2014, yeah. if, if that's the date that FACA uh, or whatever date FACA became effective. Was implemented, yeah, in that country. Um, you know, so I can understand that that group, if, they're, you know, if their accounts were under threat of closure, I would regard that as, as a good thing. I think particularly in the Netherlands, this has been an issue. Um, you know, so, you know, as always, I mean, uh, I mean, let's imagine that, uh, the community of Americans abroad as a corporation with shareholders of different kinds, uh, you know, you're not going to get agreement among the shareholders in a corporation and you're not going to get agreement among Americans abroad. 
Uh, I mean, obviously, if your account is not under immediate threat of closure, I don't see why anybody could see this as anything but an extension of the problem. Uh, but, you know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and I know some banks have been more uh, diligent than others in weeding out U.S. persons and asking them for their Social Security number or a certificate of loss of nationality. And if they don't provide one or the other, their bank account will be closed. But that's not consistent across the board. So what this is, what's happening now is, according to, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the enforcement is going to be ratcheted up. That these banks. Oh, absolutely. Be- yeah, Keith, you're 100% correct. In other words, uh, the, the basic line, the dividing line, I think, has been this that in, in parts of the world where your identity, your basic identity card includes a place of birth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, clearly the bank account issue is a bigger problem. All right. Yeah. You know, any bank yeah. can see, but in a place like Canada, Australia, or, you know, or uh, wherever else, where identity cards do not typically have a place of birth. Um, you know, I think that there are, are fewer uh, people in that part of the world, in Canada or Australia. Why don't I say Canada, since I know more about Canada. There are fewer uh, Canadians who I think are, uh, you know, under current threat of their accounts being closed. Uh, you know, clearly we know from the situation in the Netherlands that it is a big problem. Mm-hmm. But... What is important to understand here is that this notice 2023-11 is not just aimed at the Netherlands. It's no. aimed at the whole world. Yes. Okay. So in other words, in other words, uh, all of these governments and IGA Model 1 countries, Model 1 IGA countries, whatever, are now in a position where, you know, fundamentally, if... Uh, if any of their financial institutions require relief under this procedure, that the government itself is required to go out and sort of advertise for Americans. I mean, I can just imagine it, uh, you know, over the airwaves. Are you or has anybody in your family ever been an American? It's time to check. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 disgusting. It is disgusting. Yeah, and it also puts the uh, countries, should they um, adhere to this, strong arm it it's strong arm enforcement um it puts them in a pickle because in a lot of countries I'll, I'll just speak about europe because i know that better than any other part of the world is that many countries have a law where you have a right to a bank account so if you take that u.s person and say okay if you don't supply a social security number your account will be closed well guess what they have to have a bank account regardless so does that mean that that country has to change that right to a bank account law? You see what I mean? Regardless, yeah, oh, I, do, I do see what you mean. You know, U.S. Well, I mean, here's the problem. It's a little more nuanced than that, right? I mean, we can say a U.S. law requires the closure of the bank account, but it's no longer a U.S. law because in entering into the IGAs, all of these countries basically uh, enacted domestic laws, which essentially enacted a U.S. law FACA as their own law on their soil, right? So what they really have going on, I would think, is, uh, you know, say, for example, a country like the Netherlands, okay, but I'm speculating here because, this is, you know, uh, you know, it's a situation where one part of Dutch law would say, yes, 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 we must comply with FACA, mm-hmm. okay? And, of course, part of complying with the FACA IGA means that if a U.S. Social Security number is not provided, 
uh, that to avoid significant non-compliance, the account has to be closed, right? Right. right. So, so once one part of the Dutch law is saying now the account has to be closed, but another one says, but our residents are, you know, uh, re- entitled to a bank account, right? Right. So, so the exactly. problem from a U.S. perspective, they'll see this as not our problem, but a problem of, of incongruent Dutch laws. Right. It's not our problem. It's the Dutch. They have yeah. inconsistent laws. How can anybody be so stupid? Right. I mean, yeah. that would there be that would be the U.S. view. Not our problem. It's the Dutch problem. It's their laws that are inconsistent. So the question is, you know, what what are, what is a country like that going to do? That on the one hand is has agreed to do the bidding of the United States, and eventually close the accounts uh, of uh, you know of people who don't have a U.S. Social Security number. But the other the other hand is saying, well, they have to have a law anyway. So there's there's it seems to me there's there's two things they can do. Okay. Uh, you know, the first is, uh, um, you know, what they really should do is just say, you know, sorry, we're done with FACA. Mm-hmm. Or the second would be to amend the law requiring that everybody's entitled to a bank account to simply exclude anybody who the U.S. defines as a U.S. citizen. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, um, I, and I can see that coming. OK, I can see it coming. Well, I can what I can also see coming is. Um, at the end of the day, there's going to be an augmentation in renunciations, because if you don't have a social security number and your bank is, you know, really enforcing, you need to have a social security number to keep your bank account open. They do give you the other option. The other option is please provide a certificate of loss of nationality. So the American who does not have a bank, excuse me, a social security number has two choices. They either try to get a social security number or they renounce in the immediate so they can maintain their bank accounts and move forward. Um, there's really well, no other sir- choice. I mean, there's there's self-certification, but that's a whole other uh, bowl of wax to go down. But- well, self-certification is an option for... Uh- Certain people, certain Americans. Well, certain people, and not not a, not a really really small group. I mean, there are people who you know have a U.S. birthplace, but can argue relinquishment of U.S. citizenship even though they don't have a CLN. But I mean, I I would agree with you that at this point, I suspect that uh, I mean I can tell you that I get far fewer requests for helping people with um, self certifications. Of course, uh, some bad yeah. relinquishments than I did years ago. So I would have to think that you know most of that sort of exhausted itself. So yeah, I mean, um, I think that you know in Europe where it's clear that a U.S. birthplace uh, implies U.S. citizenship, mm-hmm. um, I think that's probably about right. Okay, they either get a Social Security number or they uh, or they renounce. Right. And obtaining a social security number, and I know I'm getting into the weeds, but I'll just make this one statement. It's not always very easy. And I know of situations where that social security number has been denied, even though that person has had a U.S. place of birth because they haven't been able to provide the litany of documents to be able to obtain it because it's such a monumental task to do so. Yeah, that's so exactly the- right. Uh, and there's no question about that. And social security number applications are handled differently in different parts of the world. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, again, this is not a big part of what I'm involved in. It's not been, you know, for a long time. Uh, but 
you know, even even in North America, okay, uh, there are huge discrepancies in how applications for those things are handled. Yeah. And in some cases, it's, you see, social security numbers have nothing to do with truth or the application. It has nothing to do with truth, but everything to do with proof. Okay. Yeah, so, that's you true. Know, U.S. culture is a reporting culture. Okay. And it's, you know, it's a records keeping and reporting based culture, probably without precedent in the modern world, where the general obligation of U.S. citizenship is report, uh, you know, re- report everything, report often, you know, keep a record of what you report, <laughs> et cetera. And, you know, a lot of people just haven't run their lives that way, right? So they don't have the, um, uh, you know, they just don't have the documentation to pull that off. Yeah. Or there's or there's holes in the documentation. And yeah, you're you know, immediately denied. Like this, or, oh, my God, look, you know, the name on this report card. I mean, there's one letter off. Is, is this really you? I mean, are you trying to? I mean, like, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. OK, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, and, I, and I and I know this for a fact because I've been in contact with the Social Security Administration over the years and their international division, and I know a fact that people will get denied even though they had a U.S. place of birth because their dossier was incomplete for whatever reason. That's so right. It just adds another. It just adds another layer of this Kafka esque situation for Americans who don't have a Social Security number. Whether they be accidental Americans or Americans born abroad uh, to American parents or parents, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's no question about it. There's no question about it. Um, I think here's the thing, right? Uh, you know, most of the focus of discussion of this stuff is, I think, needlessly uh, specific. I think what's important is uh, to look at the broader picture here, mm-hmm. okay. at least the way I see it. First thing I would say is that um, the concern of the foreign financial institution is to avoid being in significant noncompliance. There's only one way to ensure that you can't be deemed to be in significant noncompliance, and that's to kick out all American citizen customers, regardless. Right, or give, or I agree, but or give them the opportunity, saying either renounce, present us a CLN, or your bank accounts will be closed. Full stop. Well, of course, that's of course, it. of course, of course. But that's yeah. the same thing, okay? Yeah, yeah. You know, to not have U.S. citizen customers, and I, you know, honestly. I mean, the tone of this 2023-11 thing is so condescending and so abusive. Uh, I mean, you know, there's one sentence in there where they say, oh, oh, by the way, you know, the relief we're offering in this right now is far more generous than it's likely to be down the road. Okay. You know, it's the the typical sort of, you know, uh, you know, we're going to tell you what to do. It also, it, it also clearly indicates that the people in Treasury have no understanding of the broader context of this problem, none at all. No, um, which is surprising because a, a number of people in Treasury have been briefed on the situation. But I may I say that it falls on deaf ears, or to use your expression, they don't care that they don't care. Um, I think that. I think that both are true, but I think there's a third component to this that 
needs to be recognized. And I think really that, you know, the community of Americans abroad and their groups have exacerbated this as a problem. And I think there may be room to change this. And hmm. the problem is even calling this a tax issue, citizenship taxation. Tax codes in the modern world are include tax taxes, but they're primarily social engineering documents that regulate, you know, how people can do financial planning, save for retirement and things like that. Right. And what somebody might see as a tax issue is really, uh, and includes tax, right? But, but it really is, you know, U.S. rules that prohibit U.S. born people living outside the United States from being able to live uh, a financial life on equal terms with equal opportunities as citizens of other countries, because only U.S. citizens uh, are restricted in their life opportunities by what people call citizenship taxation rules, but really have very little to do with taxation, uh, you know, given the fact that so many, um, you know, U.S. citizens abroad don't even actually owe U.S. tax, although admittedly there are a lot that do. So I think that it would be wise to get a clearer statement, group of sentences, paragraph on what the problem really is. Uh, it includes a tax problem, yes, all right, particularly for people who, uh, you know, have small businesses and that. But it's more of a, the way it impacts most people is more of a, you know, creating sort of a disability in their life where, they're no, where they just don't have the opportunities available to other people. Yeah, they can't live a normal life whatever yeah. country they're yeah. living in. Yeah, and yeah. on the tax thing, I mean, as I've been saying for years, okay, um, this is not taxation as per the rules that apply to resident Americans. It's a whole different system yeah. as well. And I think that these two points uh, do not come through effectively. Um, I agree. Know, they don't. I don't think <laughs> that, you know, this is an incredibly complex problem. I mean, I've been involved in this for you know, really years at this point. And it takes a long time to learn this stuff. It takes a long time to learn this stuff. But I remember a while ago, and the person who will remain nameless, is, and, and this is someone who is, uh, all I will say is associated with an American overseas political organization, stated to me that actually it's fair, the taxation system with uh, resident Americans and Americans overseas, because it's the same system for both and my argument is how can it be the same system for both when you are penalizing americans overseas for banking and investing locally but you're deeming it foreign so they're penalized at a much higher level yeah something you right. know you see what i mean oh, totally, and this totally. and this individual unfortunately just did not understand well, a lot, a lot of these individuals, you know, whether they're in or outside the United States, don't understand because, you know, you know, we're sort of, you know, for a moment, let's let's delve into just philosophically what equality means, okay, uh, and then they get back to the practicality because this is something that, that is a great interest to me. Um, you know, when I was uh, very young, growing up, and even stupider than I am today, um, 
I remember, you know, I had two sisters, and I remember um, that my, I think it may have been my father or somebody anyway, took them out shopping. And they both were received as gifts exactly the same thing. I think they were, I think they were, they may have been dresses or something, exactly the same thing. And let's just say, for example, that they were both red dresses. One of them just loved the red dress because she loved red dresses. The other one hated the red dress because, you know, no, I would never wear a red dress. What, are you kidding me? Right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, on one level you could say, well, those two girls were treated equally because they each got exactly the same thing. Okay. Yeah. But on the other hand, they were clearly treated completely unequally because one got something that she wanted and liked and the other got something that, you know, she despised. Okay. So the starting point is that the equal application of rules to people is absolutely not a guarantee of equality unless you have a really, really, you know, sort of unprincipled, unenlightened view of equality. Okay. Uh, You know, it's not equality at all. And in fact, can create enormous inequality. And, you know, in fact, at this moment, I'm reminded of in the early years of Canada's Charter of Rights, uh, Chief Justice Dixon, who was, you know, at least to date, the greatest Chief Justice Canada's ever had, you know, I had this footnote in a case where he said, you know, the true interest of equality may require differentiation and treatment. And Interesting. I, think I think that's clearly the case here, right? Yeah. You, yeah. You know, because to treat people equally under the same rules is, you know, is, is absolutely unequal, idiotic and unfair because, you know, I mean, let's just take the most basic level. For a U.S. resident, for example, I mean, let's start with the principle that, you know, if you invest in a non-mutual, uh, non-U.S. mutual fund, you know, you're going to be subjected to punitive taxation, right? Okay, so, you know, for a U.S. resident uh, to invest in a non-U.S. mutual fund is one thing, uh, because they're a U.S. resident and clearly is foreign vis-a-vis them. But for a U.S. citizen living outside the United States, who's always lived outside the United States, you know that's obviously not a you know a foreign mutual fund. No, it's local. Yeah, it's that, local. That's exactly right. So the example I always use, you know, and I, I, always the same example. Uh, you know, you if you were to buy Templeton Mutual Fund in Buffalo, New York, it's and this is exactly the same mutual fund, right? In Buffalo, New York, it's no problem. Great choice, maybe. Okay, but if you buy the same thing in Toronto, Canada, buddy, you just bought a foreign mutual fund. You know, you know, I mean, it's absolutely insane. So, you know, the the first point I would make is that with respect to. I mean, I I think what we're talking about is different people have different views of what equal treatment means. And if you if your view is that. If your view is that uh, equal treatment means the same laws apply to everybody in the same way, then they would be right. But I would ask the following question. I mean, what if, for example, uh, you know, the U.S. were to pass a law, and this is not far off, actually, given the arbitrariness of, of the tax residency rules. What if the U.S. were to pass a law that everybody with blue eyes is, is subject to a special tax every year? Well, 
you know, obviously the laws apply to everybody. It's just the people with blue eyes are punished. Right. Equally punished. <laughs> equally well, punished. You know, yeah. you know, it's interesting, though, if we apply that to the community of Americans abroad, they're not even equally punished, right? Because then it depends. Next country is where, what country do they actually live in outside the United States? Yeah, that's true. So there are different rules in different countries, you know, for various reasons, you know, yeah. including a treaty related things. Right. So, you know, I mean, this this um, I mean, you can say that the same language, perhaps, you know, applies to everybody equally. But but honestly, the claim that it's the same laws is. um it's, it's a hard one. I mean, if the purpose of the claim is to say that there's no inequality. Uh, then that yeah. is, you know, an outrageous statement. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. So you know, let me ask. Hold on. Let me just say on this for one second, okay? Uh, a second sure. thing, since we're talking about equality generally, okay? And I'm just trying to keep these thoughts in the same category for the purpose of this discussion. Um. So. One of the, I mean, everybody agrees that the part of the, you know, you talk about equality, you talk about it in the context of, you know, what's supposed to be a, you know, a democracy and, you know, and what does equality mean in the law making process? And uh, so the problem with Americans abroad is they have, of course, really all no Americans have political representation, zero, no American citizen by definition, because you know, as is evidenced by the, lunacy that's going on in dc right now in yeah. politics in america is about you know the democrats fighting the republicans and vice versa it's not about you know helping anybody I mean, it's ridiculous uh, but what is clear is that uh, u.s citizens abroad have no representation in congress nor and because they're so uh, uh spread out all over the world uh, they really have no political influence uh you know the claims of da to the contrary right so yes equality in political context you know according to people like dworkin the late ronald dworkin would be not that you know the laws have to be equal although they you know probably should affect people equally not that the laws should be equal but that all people should you know have equal concern and respect and acknowledgement in the political process okay in other words you know, we hear you. We hear you. We may not agree with you. We may not help you, but at least we hear you. The problem with Americans abroad is that, no, you know, they can't even be heard. They can't even be heard. Okay. And at the same time, you know, I, I, I think they're being inappropriately used. I'm going to use that word, uh, you know, by, you know, in the political process, just as uh here vote now sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Um. So, you know, it's it's a very, very unequal situation. And, it is. And to that, I would add, and my third sort of philosophical meandering for the day is that there's a difference between a lack of equality and outright discrimination, okay? Uh, they are also subject to outright discrimination. Um, and... You know, you, you look at something like the FAC IGAs, and I think we've talked about this before, where discrimination against U.S. citizens is baked into it. And there's no change in the Internal Revenue Code that could even change that, right? Uh, they're also subject to outright discrimination. In other words, they're completely and totally abused 
by the U.S. government and by the political parties. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And they so, should declare themselves as independents, absolutely, and stop. <laughs> and have no allegiance to any political party. So let me ask you this, to come back to the, the notice that has been um, put out. What should Americans overseas, whatever they may be, born um, you know, to American parents outside the U.S., or what some many people deem accidental Americans born in the U.S. left at a young age and they don't have a social security number. What should they do, generally speaking, and what should they do, individually speaking, to uh, to uh, remedy this situation for them, generally, and for them specifically? You see what I mean? Not it's really. Kind of you're asking me what should somebody who's not in U.S. tax compliance do? Is that what you're asking me? Well, no, not necessarily. I'm just speaking specifically of this particular notice that has come out. So I don't think so, I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's anything the individuals can do. Okay. Well, I mean, other well, than I think they need to think in terms of you know of re of renouncing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, clearly, clearly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, clearly that they need to renounce and. You know, I know that there's a whole sort of culture out there of ignore the whole thing and, you know, whatever. But my, if anybody cares at all, my advice to these people would be if they can get out by the book to do so. Yeah, whatever their uh, situation is to do what they need to do. Uh, and, and there are a number of reasons for this, okay? Uh, one is that uh, at present... <laughs> The eight uh, said the expatriation rules don't have formal regulations. Okay. Uh, you know, they're operated according to a notice, which probably doesn't have legal authority. Okay. Uh, but regulations do. And I think that it's likely to be much more difficult to uh, get out of this easily down the road. Another point I would make is that, uh, you know, $2 million may not be a lot of money but it's still more than a lot of people have. And a lot of people can get out without being covered expatriates. Okay. At the present time, if they sit around too long, that won't be right either. Yeah. They, they did take a look at what's the best way for them to renounce and look right. at their options and what the pluses and minuses are for those options to renounce. And they I, just I, don't, to I, do I, it. I think the options are, are really running out. And one of the things that's very significant well, about this notice, very significant, yeah is that if you read the notice, um, it's pretty clear that the motivation for the notice from 2019, the relief procedures, was, mm -hmm. to give, was to give people who had no connection with the United States an easy way to get out, an easy way to get out, all right, uh, at least compared to, you know, the, the usual uh, forms of tax compliance. Now we have... Uh, as part of the notice, Treasury requiring banks to alert people to the relief procedures, right? Yeah. And my mm -hmm. God, I mean, here we have a country actively marketing its citizens to renounce U.S. citizenship, their citizenship. Well, not and, only uh, just that, but to, to in, in marketing the relief procedures on behalf of the United States government. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, let's forget the United States for a minute, okay? I mean, let's yeah. say, you know, you woke up in the morning and you saw um, government of Canada take steps to encourage Canadian citizens to renounce citizenship, okay? <laughs> right, I yeah. mean, you take it outside the context of this and you see why it's absurd. Right. Okay? But, I mean, make no mistake about it, or as George Bush might have said, Read my lips. That is Bush one. Okay. There's no question that the United States is encouraging. Well, maybe that's a little strong, but letting American citizens abroad know that they don't care whether they renounce or not. They don't care. But by God, if you want to be an American, you pay taxes. All right. In other words, this is a statement that what U.S. citizenship is about primarily and fundamentally is about being a taxpayer, confirming, all right, that the United States has the only, as far as I know in the world, taxation-based citizenship. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. This is incredible stuff. I mean, imagine... you You don't want to be in the tax system, renounce your citizenship. Right. Okay. And, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, this, of course, is in the context of, we've talked about this before, the 67 Supreme Court decision in a forum where, you know, the, the court clearly says the government can't do things that result in the forcible destruction of citizenship. And, you know, I mean, from the point of view of the United States and the inability to have a normal financial life, a plan for retirement, no big deal. It's just the price you pay to be an American. Okay. Exactly. Uh, you know, from the point of view of somebody who doesn't live in the United States, I can't survive without these things, so I have to renounce, okay? Yeah, that's the See, only this choice. This is the really, really, really evil stuff, okay? It is. It is and, so, and so let me rephrase my the first part of my question I had posed. What can American overseas organizations do to push back on this notice that has just come out? What position do they? The, the position, they yeah, take? yeah. Here's the position. Okay, the position is that U.S. citizenship has got to be severed from the definition of U.S. tax residency for all purposes, for all people, in all circumstances, all the time, forevermore. Which is residency-based taxation? That's what residency-based taxation is. Residency-based taxation is not that we're going to tweak the Internal Revenue Code leaving U.S. citizens as tax residents, but making it easier for them, things like the buyer bill. Although, you know, which are well-intentioned, right? But they do not sever citizenship from tax residency. And, you know, that's the message. Okay. And, you know, they've got, you know, they've got to stop this, uh, you know, this sort of, well, we just want to make citizenship taxation work better. Nope. You know, if that's the message, I mean, I'm going to put it this way. All right. I know that, you know, there will be people who will be hostile to this. There will be people who uh, think this is too extreme or perhaps who think it's wrong. But after years and years of looking at this problem, okay, I think that any, any group or individual that does not actively support severing citizenship from tax residency is actually in support of citizenship taxation. Well, they would have to be. 
Well, they'll deny it, but I think they are because what has been proven time and time again is there's no way to continue for U.S. citizens to be taxed, U.S. tax residents, even if they don't live in the United States, and for there to not be problems. It's impossible, okay? It is impossible. And, you know, a few years ago, whatever, uh, uh, you know, uh, Karen Alpert, Laura Snyder, and I, you know, we wrote that paper, which I'll stand by, a regulatory fix for citizenship taxation. There is no question in my mind, no question in my mind, the Treasury has the regulatory authority to fix all these things, and they are refusing to do so. And what people need to understand is that that means that the position of the U.S. government is that citizenship taxation is good, it needs to continue, and it needs to be enforced. Okay? And, you know, therefore, you know, these, these so-called advocacy groups or individuals or whoever they may be, who play along with us, we're going to make citizenship taxation better or more pleasant. Yeah. You know, they're not helping, unfortunately. Well, and I, and I think another issue with that is, is if I may be as bold to say this, is that a lot of these groups and entities and so forth don't deal personally with the individuals who are damaged by this on a weekly basis. They just aren't. They don't you deal with it. You they deal with it. I deal with it. We see the damage done. First hand. I, I, think, I think that that's a cir- I think that I think it's a circumstance. But I also think that and this may sound like an outrageous statement, but I'm going to stand by it. Is that I don't think very many people in the U.S. tax compliance community in the United States even understand how this works. No, you know they see it as. Uh, you know, these problems are solved by foreign tax credits or, uh, you know, foreign or, or even treaties or something like that. They don't understand the problem is not the rate of taxation, not the fact of taxation, so but the way that the so-called taxation interferes with people's lives. All right. They don't understand that. And they don't understand it because they haven't experienced it. Right. And, and it's also partly that I don't think that the ma- the major advocacy groups have done a good enough job of, of making that clear. Uh, you know, but I'm not being critical of any of them because I, I do believe, just for the record here, if it matters, I do believe that all of these groups uh, are in fundamental agreement that there's a very serious problem here, okay? Um, where the disagreement is on how to fix it, uh, you know, my view of this, and I think... Well, and also the prioritization of putting it at the forefront to fix it. Well, yeah, that, that too, but it can't be fixed. That's the problem. Okay, you yep. cannot reform citizenship taxation. Right. Well, I meant the prioritization of pushing for residency-based taxation. Um, that needs to be at the forefront for these Americans overseas organizations. Yeah, I mean, it's, not, at the forefront. it's not. It's clearly not. I mean, some more than others. I will say that, but no, it's generally not a priority. So, what do we do with this? So, to kind of uh, sum up with this notice, it's out there. So, the people who are affected by it, I guess the bottom line is to be repetitive, is the people who are going to be affected by this, they got to renounce. Right? You know, Keith. 
about a decade ago, I came up with a phrase that re still resonates today. I see it around. It was all roads lead to pronunciation. I'm seeing that more and more and more and more. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it was, and it doesn't that. mean, and it doesn't mean for the individual they like to do the renunciation. I know many that don't want to do it, but their their hand is forced to do yeah, it. There's no question in my mind; people are being forced to renounce U.S. citizenship. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like uh, it's like constructive dismissal from a job, right? Yeah, I mean, you can't fire somebody. You just make the conditions so bad they can't they can't stay at the job. They just can't do it anymore. And, you know, and, and that's what Treasury is doing, and. Uh, you know, they make it clear that's what they're doing by, I mean, this is unbelievable, right? You know, getting the banks to advertise the opportunity to renounce using the relief procedures. Yeah. I mean, you would think that, you know, somebody at Treasury might say, isn't there something fundamentally wrong with telling these people they can't be U.S. citizens? Yeah. I mean, obviously not for them. Not for them. No. You know, which which leads me to believe because I don't think that the I, I think that the process is pure evil. I don't think that the individual people in Treasury or whoever are evil. I think they just, you know, they, they don't understand what's going on here. I mean, that's not an excuse, but it is an explanation. Um, you know, this thing. They don't deal with the damage. They don't deal with the damage individually on a weekly basis. They don't see it firsthand. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, I also think that um, I think that the, the banks need to, I really think that, I, I don't understand how I'm sitting here thinking, like if I were running one of these banks and every few years, you know, I had to get a letter from the IRS saying exactly what I had to do to not be deemed in significant noncompliance, I'd probably call up the company lawyer and say, how do I make sure I'm never in significant noncompliance? I can't deal with this. Yeah. The lawyer would say, well, you know, the only way to ensure that you're not going to be in significant non-compliance to make sure you don't have any U.S. citizen clients. Done. Yeah. Done. That's it. And there are companies that do that. They will not hire U.S. persons. And they're right. And they're right. Okay, they're right. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, it's not fair. I agree. It's very problematic for people whose only crime in life is being born in the United States. But to be clear here, the United States of America has basically disabled its own citizens. It has so depreciated the value of U.S. citizenship that not only are people lining up all around the world or traveling halfway around the world to renounce, but they're willing to pay, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to do so, including even exit taxes. I mean, I worked with somebody yeah. last week who, who's – you know, non-U.S. pension was subjected to, you know, total taxation on the renunciation. You imagine? I mean, no, whole, I can't. The whole thing is disgusting. It's disgusting, and it is. So, you know, I think that I think the message here. Uh, you know, I mean, it's hard to know exactly. So much of this depends on where you are. I mean, I think people in some countries are a lot safer than others, but. Well, not just where you are. If I may add, also what your particular financial profile is. Um, you know, some people who have a very simple profile may have lesser of a problem than somebody has a more complicated profile, you know, so they're going to have more of a burden. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's a burden and it's it inhibits one to live a normal life 
financially in their country of residence. Well, I think that's right. And I think the way to look at it, you know, I, I, I started in, you know, I try to come up with sort of metrics or examples that people might be able to deal with, you know, on the compliance thing and renunciation, you know, I usually say to people, you know, uh, if you can get out for the cost of a used car, it's probably a good investment, right? You know, that means different things to different people, you know, right. people, you know, depending on their circumstances. Right. Uh, but here's a metric that I'll offer on the problem of U.S. citizenship outside the United States. And that is that whatever your weight is, why don't you add about 25% to your weight? So if you weigh... 160 pounds, imagine you weigh 200. Yeah. If you weigh 200 pounds, imagine you weigh 250, okay? And which I think is a very reasonable way to look at this. And so you ask yourself, here's what, here's what the add-on effect of, of being a U.S. citizen abroad is in terms of difficulty in my life and my health. And yeah. I think that's actually a very, very good, a good way to look at it. What do you think of that? Oh, I agree. I agree. Or do you disagree that, with the twenty five percent? What percentage? I mean, maybe, maybe. Well, it depends. I think it's you know. Well, I think. What percentage? You know, what percentage of weight? You know, say carrying the weight of U.S. citizenship means adding what percent to your existing weight? Right, and it, it may vary from per person to person based on their particular situation, but it's still a significant amount of uh, weight, quote unquote, that they're going to be carrying around. Yeah, yeah, and I think that, I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, you know, it's something that anybody can relate to. Um, yeah, but I mean, look, there is no one size fits all. In no. part of the problem is this: this, you know, these things affect people in different ways. And that's why I tell people everyone has to be well informed and take a look at what their options are. They have to take a look at what their options are and what the pluses and minuses are for each of those options and do the best they can to pick the option that best fits them. Because well, there's really no best decision um, for anyone, even if it's renouncing. You're going to have to, you know, dealing with that emotionally for some people. You got to take a look at what your options are. Yeah, you know, absolutely. This is not a one size fits all. And, you know, and I think that, um, you know, I think that people, that most people do need help. Okay. Uh, you know, they need help from a tax point of view, from uh, a renunciation point of view. And yes, going through they, the different yeah, options. Well, they need to understand. I mean, you know, people see renunciation as why do I need help? Because, you know, I just fill out a form. Well, you need help because you need to understand what the impact on your life of filling out the form is. Okay. And, you know, there are a lot of things that people don't look at. I mean, I mean, we can go on and on, but uh, you know, it's, it's a kaleidoscope of issues for people, but what is clear is that, uh, you know, is that people are being forced out of this. There's no doubt about yeah. that. So the way I look at it as concluding the, the, this podcast is that people are going to really need to take a hard look at where they are right now and what they need to do. And if they fall into the category of not having a social security number or not being able to obtain one, um, they're going to have to take a look at renunciation and to explore the options on the best way of doing so. That's the bottom line. 
Well, if their birthplace is clear, if their U.S. birthplace is clear, yeah, and I'm assuming that we're having a discussion on the assumption that the U.S. birthplace is part of their identity document in Europe, right? Uh, then I think I think they've got a huge problem. I think they need to get out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, this has been good. It's, it's I, I feel filthy actually. After well, I know. I mean, I don't mean good as in, this is a good situation. No, no, I know. This has I know, been good to have this mean, discussion. It really, it is is so so indescribably disgusting. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, when the history of the United States is written, I, I, I predict this is going to have a chapter. What other country in the history of the world is actively messaging its own citizens that it doesn't matter if you renounce? Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I mean, it's simply it is just you. You can't make this stuff up. No, it's uh, my bomb. The other problem you've got oh. here, Keith, is this: that these organizations basically are not willing to condemn the U.S. government on this. You know, they just. I you know, I'm very very surprised that they, uh, you know, sort of discuss this as well it's all a mistake or an attempt to work it out it's not it's willful it's willful yeah well i think people need to based on this podcast if you are listening to this is to go back and read with rapt attention the notice that's come out and you'll see the seriousness of the problem yeah, read the whole thing and read it for what it says and not what you wish it said. Okay. Right. And understand right. that it is not an extension. Or, you know, uh, it's not business as usual. Okay. This is, a you know, requiring clear commitment on the banks and the host government to smoke out. We're going to smoke them out, these U.S. citizens. Right. All right. Well, good. Well, then... Uh... Stay tuned, I guess, for the next podcast. All right. Thanks a lot, Keith. Thank you.